Last uh, week, I began by telling you about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. And this find produced a, a treasure trove of ancient manuscripts. Some of these were the, the writings of the Ascends, but the majority of the manuscripts were scrolls of the Old Testament, including a completely intact Isaiah scroll. And these were manuscripts that dated back from before the time of Christ. One big reason the Dead Sea Scrolls were so significant was the proof they gave of the Bible's faithful transmission. And before the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest complete manuscript we had of the Old Testament dated from around 1000 AD. But now we have these Dead Sea manuscripts going back 200 BC, 1200 years prior. And that enables us to compare and see how much the biblical text has or hasn't changed over 1,200 years, people always wonder and even claim that the Bible has changed so much over the centuries, but the Dead Sea Scrolls prove otherwise. <clears throat> they, they prove that the, uh, the, the Hebrew script was <clears throat> faithfully copied and transmitted down the centuries, and that the New Old Testament we have today is virtually identical to what Christ would have had. It's sending confirmation that the Jews and later Christians copied these manuscripts so meticulously they did so because they, they believed that these were God's words. This was their scripture, the very word of God that had to be preserved word for word. In fact, the Jews had an entire class, the scribes, dedicated to caring for and copying God's word. The scribal tradition emerged after the exile of Israel. The Jews understood that after the temple was destroyed and they were exiled, that this happened because they didn't hold their scriptures in so high regard. They had ignored the law of Moses. They had violated God's commands. And God had brought all the curses on them. He, he said he would. But as the Jews returned to the land, they vowed that they would never let this happen again. They would never again forget or forsake God's word. They, were, they vowed to keep all his commandments, all 613 of them from the Old Testament. But the Jews, over time, they, they took things a step further they became so zealous in their law-keeping that they created a fail-safe system. If, if sin was like falling off a cliff, they, they wanted to make some guardrails to prevent that from ever happening. They wanted to build what they said was like a hedge around God's law, making it impossible to even come close to violating it. And so a second layer of rules and regulations formed over the, the centuries, later became known as the Mishnah or the tradition of the elders, but over time, this, this second law really got out of hand. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of new laws were added on top of the Old Testament. Things God had never said. But soon this man-made tradition had become just as authoritative as God's actual law. And even more so that the Torah, God's law, took a back seat to these traditions. You didn't really need to know or study the Old Testament that much, just just read the rabbis. They're the ones who know what it means anyway. And, and keeping this second law, the, the traditions of the elders, it eventually became completely ingrained into Jewish culture. I mean, keeping these traditions, it was part and parcel with, with being a Jew. No one questioned this tradition. No one challenged this tradition. That is, until, of course, Jesus came. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he completely blew this Jewish tradition out of the water. He didn't regard the traditions of the elders as authoritative at all. I mean, Christ lived in perfect obedience to God's actual word, but he had no problem violating it and totally disregarding the commandments of men that were passed down. And that's all this tradition was. Even more so, Jesus eviscerated this tradition. He gutted the teachings of the elders because they had actually obscured the way to God. If you listened to them and you kept all their rules and regulations, they, they made a system of, of self-righteousness, of works righteousness, you would actually be barred from the kingdom. You'd be kept out. So false was their teaching. And this is why Jesus often can let them have it. You can imagine though how this might make Jesus look, even to the ordinary Jew. Because in their mind, that the tradition of the elders and the Old Testament like fused together. So when Jesus opposed their tradition, it, to them it was perceived like he's opposing God's word. I mean, who does this new teacher Jesus think he is? Is he lawless? Is, is he advocating we should ignore what God has said? And you can see how picking a fight with 
the traditions of the elders might cause Jesus some trouble. And it certainly did. I mean, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they never accepted what Jesus said about all this. But Jesus was sure to set the record straight, lest any of his followers actually thought he came to oppose God's word. Far from it. His problem was never with God's word, just just their word. And he wanted his disciples to know that. And in the process of explaining himself, he actually brings a lot of clarity to one of the biggest subjects of scripture, and that is Christ's own relationship to the law, to the Old Testament. I mean, how exactly did Jesus view the Old Testament? And what was Christ's relationship to the law of Moses? These are huge questions because they directly impact how we today now, as his followers, relate to the Old Testament. And so Jesus, he sets the record straight. He cuts through the tradition of the elders without cutting through the Old Testament. And as he does so, we, we want to pay attention. We want to clue in what is he saying about how even we should relate to God's word. And that's something we want to do this morning as we return to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So once again, you can take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. And the next passage which we have for today, it's, it's easily the single most important text explaining Christ's relationship to God's Old Testament law. And I really wasn't exaggerating when I said that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the most condensed and powerful form of Christ teaching on, on a variety of subjects, and the law is no exception. In fact, Jesus will spend the remainder of chapter 5 expounding on this whole issue of the, the law, the right view of God's law. And we start today with verses 17 through 20 to, to begin this passage. It's another, I think, familiar passage, but I feel if most Christians were challenged to clearly explain what Jesus means, they might struggle. This is a challenging text. Upon careful study, it yields clear truth about how Jesus and his followers should relate to God's law, but it takes some careful study. Something we need to see. We, we definitely want to pay attention to this. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Let, let's just get started by reading this passage. Again, I'll, I'll bet you it's familiar to you. But let's give it a read. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. And Jesus says next, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's a loaded four verses right there, right? And most believe in verse 17, Jesus is beginning the body of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. What he said so far has been introduction. He started with the Beatitudes, showing the primary character of the kingdom citizen. Then he went to the images of salt and light, showing the primary conduct, the role of the kingdom citizen. He ended with this call in verse 16 to let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Disciples are meant to display true righteousness in their lives. But, But what this righteousness Looks like what these good works consist of. He's going to spend pretty much the rest of the sermon explaining. What does righteous living look like in relationship to God's law? And what does right living look like in relationship to the traditions of the elders? You're going to find out. It begins in verses 17 and 18. Explaining first how he, Jesus, the Christ, relates to the law. This is what Jesus thinks of the Old Testament. And from there, verses 19 through 20, he tells next how, how we relate to that same law. 
Again, this is a huge deal because how you interpret these verses will vastly impact how you live as a Christian today. So we need to just carefully parse through what Jesus says on the law and the Christ and the law and the Christian. We might get it right, that we might live rightly in relationship to what God has said. That's our goal. We're going to first just kind of make a pass through verses 17 and 18 and see what Jesus says and then draw some conclusions. So back to verse 17. Let's just make our way through these verses. He starts in verse 17. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. He opens up this verse. He says, do not think, which already suggests that his audience may have thought otherwise. He says that to ward off what they otherwise might be thinking. You know, do not think, as some of you are prone to do, that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. The way he's phrasing it, it's like he's saying, don't, don't even entertain the thought that I came to abolish the law. But it makes us wonder, though, like, why would have people entertain that thought? Why would they have believed Jesus came to oppose the law? Well, like I said earlier, Jesus came totally opposing the man-made rules and traditions of the elders. And the problem was that in the, mind, in the minds of most, most Jews, that the law of God had been welded to the traditions of the elders. So you oppose one, you oppose the other. It's easy to see how, as Jesus shows up and he challenges the traditions of the elders, even that the common man on the street might perceive him as having a low view of God's word. It's not the case, but you can see how the objection may have come up. But there are some other reasons Jesus would have really stood out and even be held in suspicion by some people. Certainly he was by the religious leaders. I mean, for one, Jesus did not go through any of the ordinary channels to become a rabbi, a teacher of the law. He did not study at the, the house of Hillel or the house of Shammai, major schools back then. He didn't sit under any rabbi or Pharisee to learn the proper interpretation of the law. He essentially appointed himself as a teacher. Also, when Jesus taught, unlike the other scribes, he didn't just incessantly quote other rabbis. That's all they did back then. Their teaching consisted of just continually quoting someone else. All of their authority was derived from what some other rabbi had said. But Jesus never did this. He just spoke with his own authority. We're going to see this in the rest of Matthew 5. Six times he, he gives this setup. He says, you have heard that it was said, dot, dot, dot. But I say to you, it's a stunning claim of authority. The people recognize this and it really made Jesus stand out. Nobody taught like this. In fact, look at the very ending of the Sermon on the Mount, really the, the uh, epilogue, Matthew 7. 28, 29, look what the people say after. Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So again, this really made Jesus stand out. Another way Jesus stood out was that he did not align with any existing Jewish group or, or sect he didn't identify with the scribes, or the Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, the Ascends, the Zealots. He didn't fit in any category back then. The only people he really identified with were sinners, the outcasts, the poor, the sick. But this gave the religious leaders trouble pigeonholing Jesus. Like, like what, what do we do with you? Where do we put you? Who are you? Being this kind of like renegade rabbi, Jesus even further set himself apart with all of these, these radical new actions and teachings. I mean, already by the time he gives this Sermon on the Mount, uh, there have already been a couple of Sabbath controversies. Like in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a man, uh, uh, heals a paralytic, and then declares his sins are forgiven. Or Mark chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, right in front of the scribes and Pharisees. And this raised their eyebrows. I mean, does this Jesus have no regard for God's law? He just, he's breaking the fourth commandment. Does he not care about keeping the Sabbath? And of course, Jesus was only violating their man-made tradition and distortion of the Sabbath, but you get the point. But perhaps above all, 
Jesus drew suspicion with his words. I mean, just take the Sermon on the Mount, what we've already seen. Here, Jesus is describing the way into the kingdom with the Beatitudes. And what's he talk about? He talks about being poor in spirit, being meek, mourning over your sin. What's glaringly absent from the Beatitudes? There's no mention of keeping the commandments. There's no mention of observing the tradition of the elders. That's not what people had been taught about the way into the kingdom. They would have wondered, like, what, were you leaving out all the law? What are you talking about? How do we get into the kingdom without keeping the law? It's kind of like sharing the gospel today with a Catholic who lives in Vatican City, and you make no mention of any Catholic pope or priest or council or creed. You just share the Bible, and they might wonder, like, what, you're leaving out all these things God has said. Well, no, actually, but you know, this is what Jesus is running into. He does care what God has said. That's the whole point. What, what God has said, not what man has said and added to it. He's only concerned with what God has said. So all that goes to say here in verse 17, Christ is setting the record straight. He's addressing this issue head on, rightly representing himself. So don't even think for a second he came to oppose, abolish the law of the prophets. Now, that phrase, law and prophets, it's a simple way back then to refer to the whole Old Testament. The law refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. And sometimes the term law is used to refer to the whole Old Testament, but especially when it's paired with prophets, it really was a common way that they referred to the whole Old Testament canon. And when Jesus says law and prophets, he's purposely excluding the traditions of the elders. But his point is, when it comes to everything God actually said, he didn't come to oppose any of that. He didn't come to abolish any of that. Now, that word abolish, it's, it's a strong term. He's not trying to abolish the Old Testament. Abolish is kataluo in the Greek. It comes from the word luo, which means to loose, to destroy, to demolish. But it's an intensified form. Kataluo, we're talking about utterly demolish. Or completely destroy something. This word was often used to talk about destroying buildings. You know, Jesus had talked about the temple, how not one stone would be left upon another. It, would to, it was going to be utterly destroyed. So we're talking about tearing something down completely or, or rendering it useless. And Christ is saying he did not come to do the equivalent of that to the Old Testament. He did not come to utterly destroy the law and render it useless. His mission was not to cut the Old Testament out of the Bible. And in the second century AD, we saw the rise of Gnosticism in the, that area and even influenced the church. You had Gnostic Christianity, which was a, a combination of Christianity and Greek dualism and, and pagan philosophy. And there's a prominent Gnostic Christian named Marcion. Marcion they believed in two gods, very dualistic. There is a good God and a bad God. There's a benevolent God, a, a powerful God. It's the God of the New Testament. It's the God who sent Jesus. He's the good one. And then there is a bad God, a second God, God of the Old Testament. He's a lesser deity. He's malevolent. Of course, this isn't from the Bible. This is Greek dualism uh, melded with Christianity. But as a result, Marcion believed that, that the God of the Old Testament was inferior. His will revealed in the Old Testament, was inferior. He was this subordinate kind of ogre God. So later, this guy Marcin, he made his own canon. He made his own Bible. And notoriously, he cut out every single book of the Old Testament. Not a single one was worthy to be included in the Bible. It was all inferior. Well, here, Jesus is pretty much saying the exact opposite of that. He surely did not come to do that. In fact, every part of the Old Testament was God's word. And it's precisely because of that fact, Jesus says he does not come to abolish it, but fulfill it. And at the end of verse 17, I, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the more you think about that, that little phrase, that, that's a monumental claim that, that Christ is saying the whole Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. I mean, that, that claim just, just might barely sit under, like when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. 
And some of the massive claims he made, this is a huge claim. But what does it mean? How exactly did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? And then what are the implications of that? That's really the million dollar question. We're not quite ready to answer it yet. We will come right back to it. But I first want to go through verse 18 and bring in a little bit more of the context before we return to the big question. So let's do that. Let's keep going. Verse 18, he adds, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Christ connects what he says here in verse 18 to verse 17 with the conjunction for, for, he's giving the reason now for which he came not to abolish, but to fulfill. He introduces this reason with, with an intention getter. When he says, for truly, I say to you, that's kind of like Christ's calling card of authority. Whenever he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're meant to listen up. The word truly, it's the same word for amen in, in the New Testament. It's a word of affirmation. We use it at the end of a prayer to express our desire, like, you know, so let it be true. Christ used it at the beginning of sentences, really to indicate he's about to tell you what's true. He's about to declare to you some truth. This is Jesus using some of that authority he claimed for himself. And so you better listen up. When he says, truly, I say to you, he's about to give you a huge truth claim. And the core of his truth claim in verse 18 is simply that God's law will not pass away. The law and the prophets will not pass away. Not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the law. This is Jesus literally upholding every single letter of the Old Testament. The smallest letter that that translates the Greek word iota, which is the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. looks like our lowercase i. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is the Yod, which looks like basically an apostrophe mark. And so, you know, forget the smallest word. Not even the smallest letter will pass away from this law. He takes it a step further. He doesn't even have to, but he goes a step further. Not even the smallest stroke will pass from the law. Most likely, this is referring to the, the tiny little stroke of a pen that distinguishes one letter from another letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Our English equivalent, just think of the difference between an uppercase O and an uppercase Q. Or an uppercase P and uppercase R. Just just one little stroke and you have a different letter. You might have a different meaning of a word too. But what he's saying is not not even that will pass from the law. It's obviously just a hyperbolic way of saying none of it. Like there's no part, not even what you think is the least significant part is going to pass away from what God has said. So it kind of sounds like the Old Testament is a big deal to Jesus. None of it will pass away. Pass away, what what does that mean? This Greek word is used metaphorically for death, like when someone passes away or a generation passes away. And he's using it essentially synonymously with abolish in verse 17. He's saying that the Old Testament won't lose force. It won't lose authority. It won't be abolished or destroyed. Christ is arguing for the ongoing role and authority of the Old Testament. But you'll notice this is not actually an absolute statement. Because in verse 18, he includes two until clauses, right? Until. Which means there will be a time when the law and the prophets do pass away. When they are rendered totally obsolete. When is that time? Well, verse 18, he says, first, it's not until heaven and earth pass away. Same word for pass away. So basically, when, when this heaven and earth pass away, well, that's when you can expect the law and the prophets to finally pass away. Heaven does not refer to the spiritual realm of heaven. It's just talking about the sky. Heaven and earth, it's a common way of referring to you know, this planet, this creation. So as long as this creation is around in its present form, you can expect the law and the prophets to be around, to not be abolished. There will be a time when that's not the case. 2 Peter 3.10, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, same word, with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works 
will be burned up. This is parallel Revelation 21 verse 1, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Same word. Not anytime soon, but it's not even at the second coming, but thereafter, one day, the Lord will establish a new heaven and a new earth. The existing heaven and earth will be destroyed and recreated. And so when that finally happens, which includes God's people being fully glorified with him forever, made to sin no more, when that finally happens, well, then you can expect the law and the prophets to be rendered truly, truly obsolete. The second until statement basically says the same thing at the end of verse 18. He adds, the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. It speaks of of completion, of fulfillment. Really makes perfect sense. I mean, if you had to summarize the entire Old Testament with just one word, what word would you choose? I would argue that a pretty good word would be promise. The Old Testament begins with with the problem of this present heaven and earth, namely sin, Satan, and death. It then looks forward to this time when God's kingdom is restored. God's people dwell with him in that kingdom forever, free from sin, Satan, and death. And really, it's in promise form, the Old Testament everywhere anticipates that future. It anticipates a renewed, recreated heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. It anticipates a time when sin, Satan, and the last enemy, death, are gone forever. And and all these, these promises, they're all funneled through one figure, the Messiah. And this is what the revelation of the scriptures are all about. It is God showing the way, revealing his plan to that kingdom. And, well, until that kingdom comes in its fullness, you can expect the Old Testament to not pass away. Every prophecy, every promise, every penalty, every precept, everything that requires fulfillment must find fulfillment. Everything the Old Testament looks forward to must come to pass, with no exceptions. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 18. You can see then, you know, far from having a low view of God's word, as if he came to cut it out of the Bible or, or just do away with it. I mean, just the opposite. Jesus has the highest view of God's word possible. He believes the Old Testament is fully the word of God. And because it's fully the word of God, it's, it's true. And because it's true, all of it will be, he says, accomplished. It will be completed. It will be fulfilled. And so you see in verse 18, this is another huge claim Jesus is making. This time about the scriptures. He's claiming that that this is the very word of God, which will be accomplished. Now, this is why I wanted to cover verse 18 first, though, before we go back to verse 17. Because you have two huge claims that Jesus makes. Verse 17, verse 18. They stand on their own, but when you combine them together, as they relate to one another, it's like they combust and make an even bigger claim. What is that claim? Verse 18 is that, that the scriptures will be fulfilled. They're, they're fully God's word. Everything anticipated will come to fulfillment. But, you know, back at the end of verse 17, Christ is saying he is that fulfillment. He personally is the fulfillment to the entire Old Testament. If Jesus was, was just a teacher, we would expect him to say, you know, I, I came to explain the law. I came to teach the law. I came to clarify the law. And he did all that. But only the Messiah could say, I came to fulfill the law. I hope you can see how earth-shattering a claim that was, especially to his original audience, because they're looking at this guy who looks like an ordinary Jew. He's a son of a carpenter. He's from the, the podunk town of Nazareth. But he's saying that the entirety of God's word is is about him. Like this guy standing in front of him. It all points to him. It's all fulfilled in him. It's just an outrageous claim. But it's true. He gave his calling card. How many works, how many miracles, how many signs did he perform that showed he was no ordinary Jew? 
He is the Christ, the Messiah, and even more, he's the divine Messiah. He's, he's the God of the Old Testament come down. Now this claim that, that everything finds its fulfillment in him, it has massive implications. But before we get to those implications, we, we still need to really grapple with this statement. Like, okay, we'd all say amen to it, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old. But what exactly does that mean? How did he fulfill it? How does he fulfill God's word? The Old Testament law, how does he relate to it? There's been no shortage of ink spilled trying to explain and flesh out that question. We all wish Jesus would have taken us into the inner room and given us his extended commentary on exactly what that means. He didn't do it, but what he has said is clear enough. It all centers on this word for fulfill. Now, some have suggested Jesus fulfills the law by perfectly obeying the commands of the law. And that is true. Jesus did fulfill the demands of the law with his active and passive obedience. He did that. But that's not the totality of what verse 17 is saying. That leaves out the mention of the prophets. And that, that's not just how the word, this word fulfilled is used. Jesus is not saying here he came to do the law. He's not saying he came to perfectly keep the law, although that's true. He's saying he came to fulfill it. There's something more here. Similarly, others suggest Jesus fulfills the law by by perfectly explaining the commands of the law. That is also true. He gives the true ethical interpretation of the law of Moses. He rejects the superficial interpretation of the scribes. He's going to do that the rest of Matthew 5, pretty much. But again, that there's something more here that leaves out mention of the prophets, that that's not how this word fulfilled is used. He's not claiming he came to explain the law or interpret the law. He's making a big claim. He came to fulfill it. So there's still something more. What does fulfill mean? Plerao is the word. It means to make full or to fill something up like a vessel. You might fill it up. Figuratively, Figuratively, it refers to fully performing something or accomplishing something, to bring something to completion. That's what fulfillment is all about. You're bringing something to its intended completion. And that just means we need to ask, you know, in, in what sense is the Old Testament incomplete? Jesus says it, it, none of it's going to pass away until... All is accomplished. Okay, so what is left that's not accomplished? That's the question then. What still needs to be accomplished? Well, first, what what Jesus says here, he's not saying anything foreign to the Old Testament itself. Even in the Old Testament, there's a clear sense that, that that what God had revealed was lacking. It wasn't everything. It looked forward to something more. Like in Deuteronomy 18, you have promise of a greater prophet to come who will fully explain God's word to his people. Or Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant to come, which will replace the old and, and do for God's people what they could not do for themselves. Now, embedded within the Old Testament was the, the promise of more, of substance. And speaking of that word, substance, the New Testament refers to the Old Testament as a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to whom? Christ. Colossians 2, 17. Likewise, Hebrews 10, 1 says, the law was only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of the things. So you can see that there, there's a built-in insufficiency to the law and the prophets. They were inspired. They were authoritative. But they, they weren't complete They're incomplete in the sense that God had more to reveal about his plan of revelation and redemption. And the more God had to do, it all concerned Christ. You take our theme word for the Old Testament again, that the word promise. When you study the Old Testament hope, you find this word promise is multifaceted. It's like an umbrella. And under it, you have prophecies principles, precepts, programs, patterns, pictures. Couldn't think of any more P's, but that's pretty good. You just have a lot of expectation and anticipation. 
And just take, for example, the, the sacrificial system. Hebrews 10 again says those sacrifices, it says because of their imperfect nature, cannot make perfect those who draw near. In them, you've got a reminder of sin year by year. You don't have full atonement, that they're not sufficient. That was meant to leave the people waiting and wondering and yearning. When will the perfect sacrifice come? The sacrifice that actually save us forever. When's that coming? Also consider the Passover. You know, the Passover in the Old Testament, it's never directly connected to prophecy. It was an event, historical event that turned into an annual feast or festival, a time of remembrance. But embedded within this, there's a longing for something more. You know, each year the Jews would look back and remember God's deliverance, how his wrath passed over them and they were spared. They were delivered from bondage to Egypt. They were brought into God's rest, the promised land. And, and that's nice. But, you know, th- there still remains a greater bondage to sin, to death. And there's still a, a greater longing for rest, this kingdom. And so after X hundred years of doing the Passover, they're still left wondering, like, when, when's, when's like the final rest going to come? When's the ultimate Passover lamb going to come who will lead us to eternal rest? There's just a few examples. You consider further the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, the Sabbath, all the other feasts and festivals, all the other sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, the furnishings of the temple, the rooms of the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, even that the kings of Israel, the whole storyline of the Old Testament, it's all given in anticipation of something more, something lasting and eternal compared to that which is temporary and provisional. And that thing is Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. It's all finding its completion and fulfillment in the person of Christ Jesus. And so back to verse 17, that the best way to interpret Christ's claim to fulfill the law and the prophets is simply to just take the word fulfill as it's used throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew knows what's going on here. The word fulfill is a theme word in Matthew. Matthew uses this word fulfill more than all the other gospel writers combined. He's, he's uniquely drawing out this point, probably based on Christ's teaching. But it's almost like Matthew is trying to prove or display the claim that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And so when you study Matthew's gospel, what have we already seen? as Matthew interprets what it means for us to fulfill the law and the prophets. What have you already seen? We've seen this common refrain in Matthew's gospel. Something happens, this took place to fulfill. Something happens, this took place to fulfill. Matthew one twenty two, the virgin birth of Jesus took place to fulfill Isaiah. Matthew 2.6, Jesus born in Bethlehem. This took place to fulfill Micah. Matthew 2.15, Jesus was called out of Egypt took place to fulfill Hosea. Matthew 2.18, the slaughter of the infants, took place to fulfill Jeremiah. Over and over, throughout the whole gospel, to the end, Matthew 26, the disciples abandoned Jesus. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, took place to fulfill Zechariah. Matthew 27, people gambled for his clothes and he was mocked as he hung on the cross, took place to fulfill the Psalms. Over and over it goes like this. And when you study Matthew, you see how he interprets fulfillment language. And it's, it's not as narrow as Jesus just keeping the law or explaining it, although he does that. The point is that Jesus embodies and completes everything the law and the prophets anticipated. We can put it this way. Every element of the Old Testament that was forward-looking was looking forward to Christ. Every element of the Old Testament that was forward-looking was looking forward to Christ. And sometimes that involved direct prophecy. That's easy to understand in this sense. It's straightforward. The prophet Micah foresaw the Messiah we born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Okay, done. Prophecy fulfilled. But sometimes the expectation of the Old Testament is not so direct, yet still prophetic. 
Listen to this key verse. It's Matthew eleven thirteen. Matthew eleven thirteen. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You catch that, that subtle point in there? We don't speak like this. We normally think the prophets do the prophesying and the law does the legislating, meaning the law of Moses. But you see how Jesus even said the law prophesied. We don't normally think of the law as prophesying, but the point he's making is that even the law of Moses had to do with things to come. You know, from all the types and shadows, from the imperfect way people could draw near to God. Even the law anticipated the time when the perfect would come and people could fully draw near to God. And once again, that way is Christ. Now I'll say it again. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by embodying and completing everything they expected. Everything. From his first coming to his second coming to the consummation. It's Christ Jesus who brings to a completion everything God has promised. And just to drive this point home, Christ himself several times identifies himself as the theme, the purpose, and the center of the entire Old Testament. Listen to a few verses. After his resurrection, bumps into a few guys on the road to Emmaus, and he explains a thing or two to them. He says, Luke 24, 27, It says, then beginning with Moses, that's the law, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Later on, uh, Luke 24, he appears to his disciples, Luke 24, 44. He says to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be be fulfilled. John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. I mean, talk about another monumental claim. This is why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We normally would say scripture shows us the way, the truth, and the life, but Christ is that divine word incarnate. And one more, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, It says, for as many as are the promises of God in him and Christ, they are yes. Enough said. As many as are the promises of God in Christ, they're yes. They're all fulfilled. They will be. You know, this morning, we've really just, we just cracked the door on one of the biggest and honestly most complex issues in the New Testament. That's the relationship of the law to Christ. I just hope and pray some of what we said made some sense to you and helped clarify a thing or two. Much more needs to be said. But before we totally run out of time, already what we've studied bears some implications, some huge implications. And I want to spend a little time exploring those before we finish. So from what we've already learned from these two verses, I want you to consider three implications. You know, first, what this text says about the Old Testament what this, this passage says about the Old Testament, verse 18, it's, it's the single strongest statement made by Jesus himself that the entire Old Testament is inspired and inerrant. And we have from Jesus here the highest view of the scriptures, which is the foundation of our faith. He's putting his seal of approval on the whole Old Testament canon. And for the Christian, those of us who believe Jesus is the Lord, I mean, knowing his view of the Bible is everything. The Bible is always under attack as being the actual word of God. It's been under attack since the garden. But wouldn't you want to know, wouldn't you be encouraged to know that Jesus himself believed the scriptures were fully the word of God, inspired and inerrant? Well, he did. And, you know, it's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. Jesus never corrects or questions the Old Testament. He everywhere affirms it and upholds it from the historical details, even to the miraculous. Talking from the creation of Adam and Eve to Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom, Jonah and the fish, 
manna falling from heaven? He affirms it all. All the people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon. Jesus believed Moses really wrote the books of Moses. He believed David actually wrote all those Psalms. He believed Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel actually wrote all those prophecies. He believed everything they said was, was the true word of God. Again, down to what level? The words, the letters, even the smallest stroke was of God. You know, Luke said 16, 17, kind of a parallel. Christ said, it's easier, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In all, Jesus viewed the Old Testament as fully inspired, inerrant, therefore authoritative. This should encourage you greatly that you can trust the Bible. And notably the Old Testament. You can have full confidence that what was written actually came from God, was preserved for our instruction. So what Christ believed, yeah, that's good enough for me. I mean, how often we ignore the Old Testament and we relegate it to secondary status. We kind of skip over it in our Bible reading. Some of you might have a Bible printed without the Old Testament. But learn today, don't, don't sleep on what God has said. You'd be missing the, the, the frame and the canvas to the greatest picture ever, and that is of Christ. To cherish what God has said in the old and trust it as the very word of God. Now, secondly, what this text says about Jesus. The second huge implication, what this text says about Jesus. Verse 17, it says, nothing short of Jesus being the center of, of everything, of history, of creation. Verse 17 is saying that Jesus is supreme. That, that's the implication. This is the same message of Hebrews, which is the foremost book of the Bible that connects Christ to the fulfillment of the old One greater than all the prophets, priests, and kings is here. One greater than even the angels is here. Christ Jesus. And who is he? He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. This is the creator, the sustainer of all things. Come down. This is the God who who visited Moses in the burning bush. This is the God who who appeared in in the, the pillar of smoke and filled the tabernacle. This is that God come down. What Jesus says in verse 17 would be utter blasphemy if it weren't true. I mean, no wonder his opponents picked up stones to stone him. To claim that he personally is the fulfillment and embodiment of everything God promised in the Old Testament is an audacious, blasphemous claim if it weren't true. But it is true. And he says in verse 17, this is the reason for which he came. One of the reasons he came was to do this. That's, that's messianic language. This is a language of mission. This divine Messiah descended from heaven, took on human flesh, and lived among us. And one of the reasons he did so was that he might fulfill, bring to completion everything God promised. From accomplishing our salvation to one day ushering in an everlasting kingdom. And so now you too can have confidence that that this Jesus was no ordinary Jew. He was Lord and Messiah, God and King. And his kingdom is still coming. And at his first coming, he fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of prophecies and promises, all of which were written hundreds of years prior, way beyond the realm of coincidence. But Jesus kind of lined them all up and like dominoes, knocked them all down in fulfillment. He fulfilled one after another, after another. But he's actually not done. There's more to come. All is still not accomplished. We're still looking forward to his return, the fullness of his kingdom, our glorification and place with him. But now you can have full confidence that just as all of the promises of God in Christ are yes that includes your eternal salvation. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. He will finish what he started. He will complete your salvation. Trust in him. And if you're here today, you don't know this Christ, believe in him. Be convicted by the, the power of this inspired word and repent and believe in him today. 
Because you also should be warned that this Christ promises when he returns to fulfill, complete God's judgment. Psalm 2.12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is hope, and there's salvation only in this Christ. You need to believe in him today. Now to finish, a third and final implication. What this text says about us. What this text says about us. You know, big question we have is how does the law relate to the Christ? We've seen that this morning. But it kind of leads to a second question, maybe even a, maybe a bigger question for us at least. How does the law relate to the Christian? Like, what does all this now mean for us? And what Jesus says in the next two verses indicates the ongoing authority of the Old Testament. Verse 19, you know, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments is least in the kingdom. But we still wonder, like, to what degree? In what form? And don't you wonder, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. But we can't help but wonder, like, it kind of seems like he abolished a bunch of laws. Now, are we meant to live under old covenant ways? And if not, why not? How do we understand the relationship between the old and the new, especially how, how we are to live in this era of fulfillment, right? Christ has come. So how then are we to live? If you think we're going to answer that question right now, you are sorely mistaken. <laughs> and if you want to find the answer, I guess we'll just have to come back next week. Our time is up. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for your word inspired by your spirit, written by faithful men, preserved uh, by the church, that we hold in our hands today, the privilege we have, uh, untold copies of your word, but we take for granted. But you have given us everything we need for life and godliness in this word, this inspired, inerrant, divine word, which tells us of Christ, which the Christ himself believed and cherished and upheld and fulfilled every corner, every turn. And I pray we are convicted this morning, Lord, to to have that same confidence and assurance in what has been written. Even in Christ himself, fulfilling hundreds of prophecies have no explanation. It affirms to us that this is your word. We can trust this. It has the words of life we need to come to know you, to, to find salvation through this Savior who died on the cross and rose from the dead for us. And also to live now, to be sanctified, to be kingdom citizens, to live out these beatitudes. We have everything we need. So work in us this morning, the same view of your word, even the Old Testament that our Savior had. How often we, we forsake it. We thank you that you'll never forsake us, that you have promised to save us, to finish our salvation. Many other promises we can have equal confidence in. You have spoken. It will come to pass. We long for Christ to return. We pray he, he does come quickly. We long for this kingdom. But until then, may we live as his kingdom citizens and be salt and light and show the world the God we serve by, by his word and by our lives as well. Be with your people. Fill us with the knowledge. We want to, to get it right, to live rightly before you. And be with us until we return. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.